0: all children and young people are unique. How do you create that situation where someone can find their uniqueness? It's more effort in the short term, but the dividend is so amazing in the long term. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today we're speaking with Ewan McCohen. Ewan is the Hugh DT Williamson Senior Curator of Contemporary Art, Design, and Architecture at the National Gallery of Victoria in Australia. His role at the NGV includes collecting, advocacy, and the curation of exhibitions, including solo, survey, and thematic exhibitions. Key projects have included the NGV Triennial, 2017 and 2020, and the annual NGV Architecture Commissions Program from 2015 to 2020, as well as Annual Melbourne Design Week, which is Australia's leading international design festival. Ewan has more than two decades working in design strategy, curating and publishing and is an adjunct professor in the School of Design and the Social Context at RMIT University in Melbourne. He also sits as a member of the board of the Robin Boyd, found, uh, Robin Boyd Foundation. Ewan, it's delightful to have you on the podcast.
0: It's lovely to be here with you, Luca. Thank you for the invitation.
1: I'm, I'm really excited for our conversation, largely because you 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 have such a wonderful vantage point on human Creativity, expression, learning in so many forms. My first question to you is what's something you learned recently?
0: Well, I'm constantly learning things um, every day. Uh, um, and most recently, I've been looking at um, the origins of materials, the relationship that we have as a, as a species, uh, the human species, to other species that we extract from other species for, mater- for our material culture. But so we've we're actually been doing a lot of work in, in, into that. And there are some really interesting examples, I suppose, of, of um, you know, if we look at Carl Linnaeus and his um, foundational work in the early 1700s I've been reading about is setting up this sort of structure of how we understand the natural world, the, the, plant, the, the plant, animal and mineral kingdoms, as he mm-hmm. called them. Um and we're doing this investigation to better understand um how it is that materials um come into use mm. and then um what have some, been some of the consequences of that use through time. So and um and as human populations have expanded, the consequences of, of these things. Um mm. and of course what's sort of fascinating to me about Linnaeus's three kingdoms is that that um That in this was developed during the height of the colonial era, a a period of global expansion, and a lot of that expansion was about extraction. It was about resources. It wasn't about. um, It wasn't. It it, it was a business uh, um, undertaking, and so um, I'm fascinated by the fact that Linnaeus places the human at the pinnacle of. The, at the apex of the natural world. So this, this, um, this interesting position that we find ourselves in, which is really sort of facilitated by the dominant Judeo-Christian worldview, which is that God gave us dominion over yeah. nature. Yeah. And that sets up this permission, which we're investigating at the moment in terms of, well, how does that, that manifest in our attitudes towards the environment and other species? And it's really set the set the the um, the stage for several hundreds of years of um, globalization extraction, which brings us to to the current point we are in. And that's what I'm 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 learning about that. But also, I'm learning about the the evolution, which has happened quite quickly, of synthetic materials that have been developed over the last, predominantly the last century, but really accelerated in the post-war period. Um, And these are materials that don't exist in nature, Um, Mm. you know, synthetic polymers, alloys, other things like that, which have really been developed by people and reshaped the material world around us. And they've brought a lot of benefit and a lot of economic outcome, but also um, we're sort of poised at a moment at the sort of early stages of the 21st century thinking about what does this all mean for us as a species and how can we reconcile through the, I mean, I'm looking through the lens of design, but really um, we're, we're interested in what is the material ecology of the next century and can mm. we anticipate this um and use that as a curatorial lens to actually not only um, some curators reflect, so look back and, and 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 sort of assess and analyze and and catalogue in the same way that Linnaeus did to some extent. I'm much more interested in the idea of being a generative institution where we have we have some agency in shaping discourse and shaping where we might go next. So that's that's currently. One of the things that's yeah,
1: fantastic. My, my mind Yeah. really fascinating. Uh, and I think, I mean, when we think about learning or education in any of its forms, you know, there's the the kind of there's the past, the present moment, and then of course where we go to from here. And I'd love for you actually before we unpack some of the material world, which I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on, for example, ecosystem versus ecosystem. And clearly, we're realizing now with our economic models that they. We are slowly destroying the Earth (laughs) that we inhabit by by creating things like externalities, you know, separation um, between you know different aspects of activity. Uh, What what would you say is the role of an institution um, at almost a civic level, like like the National Gallery of Victoria, which you know is a gallery? um, What's its why? Why is it so critical now, for example, that we have a, a newly shaped discourse? And that done in an experiential way as opposed to, you know, for example, science, which has been fabulous at creating new insights, hasn't been yet fabulous at shifting behavior. And so we still find ourselves where we are at the moment. So, so yeah, what's your your reflection as a designer ultimately as well? You know, why is design so critical um, when we think about shaping mindset? Um, Or... Enabling deep learning.
0: Well, I mean, we, I mean, we're you know, yes, in the NGV is you know a large Australia's largest uh, gallery. We have a vast collection of over seventy thousand objects gathered from across time and across geographies. But, but um, what we can, I think that the headspace we're in as an institution certainly. I mean, there's the traditional way that we still show work and look at art histories or movements or tendencies within practice, yeah. but also increasingly taking the opportunity to re-interrogate the past. I mean, that's when you're talking about learning. One of the things I'm fascinated about is how languages, which were fundamental in human civilization for eons, such as the language of things, so, mm. so up until... Pretty much the dawn of the industrial revolution, but if we look at probably even just the arrival of um, mass production in the in the so sort of second half of the of the twentieth century, yes, um, pretty much all people had a fundamental um, literacy in materials. So, so we knew by the feel of something, by the by the colour of the wood, by the we we pretty much everybody knew where things had come from. Also because the supply chains that we were dealing with at that period of time were much less complex and shorter. I mean, those things through through the colonial period have become more and more complex. So you would end up having woods in circulation in Great Britain from or from India or from Australia. But, but fundamentally, people still understood it as wood, if you know what I mean. So this sort of mm. langu- the typologies... Um, that we had and I, I think what I'm very fascinated about is is can we rebuild some of that some of that literacy by by moving away from the idea that we talk about design as a functional or a aesthetic um you know design is generally prop, presented in cultural institutions as it's a it's a design, it's an aesthetic conversation because a designer has decided to change the look of something. Yeah. Or it's a, it's a technical conversation because we've managed to bring new function or ergonomics. Those things don't allow us to have a con- conversation about the social, political, ecological mm. um, context in which anything emerges because whether a material is centuries old or was produced yesterday or today, um. Th- th- these things all happen within a, within a whole lot of other spheres which have to interact for t- for that to be possible there's an economic sphere there's a there's a cultural sphere a social sphere an ecological sphere and all of those things can be drawn out from any object i mean we we had a simple conversation as a bunch of curators the other day about the toothpick so the toothpick toothpick one of hmm. the most humble objects in, in our everyday lives. We don't even think about them. We, we pick our teeth with them. They're a single-use thing. But um, the toothpick was effectively invented and um, mass produced. What, there was no demand for toothpicks when it was, it was, it was invented and <laughs> demand was created. But, um, but what we're interested in is at scale, even a toothpick, when you've got 7.5 billion people picking their teeth, yeah. There's a huge, there is a huge um, consequence for it, for any design decision now. So that's mm. so we're sort of interested in that. Mm. That um, so someone standing in front of an object in a gallery, they can look at it and go, okay. And we're increasingly doing it this way. It's we're less talking about what they're looking at. We're talking about the backstory behind the, the thing. Yeah. So how does this come to be, and what were some of the um, some of those um, manoeuvres, and, and I think that when you talk about externalities, that's perfectly correct because an externality is when the true price of a, of a, of a commodity is born invisibly mm. within the labour market or within the ecological sphere, um, and we're trying to um, internalise, you know, we're trying to call for the internalisation of those things, that that until we, as a... as different cultures and businesses till we can actually have transparency within the creation of anything, mm. then we can't move forward um, to deal with colonisation, the unravelling of the consequences of that, but also ecological decline and exploitation within labour and, and stuff
1: like mm. that. Mm. Gosh, you and so fascinating. I mean, I, there's something brilliant about the work that you do and others do, be it, you know, kind of, Dynamic museums or festival—the idea of crafting and designing an experience which enables people to notice something that they they have never thought about before, really making the invisible visible. You know, so your point—you know—to have a single toothpick on a wall, that you know, people go, "Oh, it's a toothpick," but then actually to, to really consider the providence, the impact of all of our somewhat unconscious decision making, is a really yeah. powerful insight because of oh, course totally. that that's, that raises. Not just self-awareness, which is a critical construct to have, know thyself, but also collective awareness of what well, kind of society of the, do we want. Yeah,
0: awareness of the ecosystem of. I mean, I sort of talk about the fact that design wraps around our lives now. Mm. It's not just it's not just things. It's the Internet of Things. It's how things all connect together. It's all of the devices and systems that you know the journey, the average journey for an average Australian person, um includes many many design touch points all through the day often things that we don't even notice anymore as we you know renew our driver's license or touch on at the tram stop or or, mm-hmm. or or tap and go when we pay all of these things have been designed and there's a whole lineage of innovation to get us to where we are but there's all this invisibility too like like we'd run a project not so long ago looking at and trying to really, the simple punchline was, do people realise that there is gold inside their mobile phone and other <laughs> rare earth metals? And most companies can't tell you where those metals came from. And most companies can't can't tell you where they will end up. But we know that there are wars being fought in in places like the Congo in Africa over, over rare earth metals. Mm. So that there's this sort of... Um, Along that thing, we're really interested in the complexity of design now, the supply chains, the, the trading systems, all of that stuff, um, while also being conscious that we also need to just celebrate beauty and celebrate creativity. And So there's these different tra- trajectories that we're looking across. We have a, a big focus on contemporary craft practice mm. and, you know, and, and the fact that material culture exists throughout, back through time. And so a lot of the um, First Peoples around the world have material culture that's unbroken Mm. um, and that that we need to see that now as contemporary design practice. It's not some kind of, it's not some kind of, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, and, And helping the general public to understand that that is, that's the correct way for those things to be viewed and and and, and respected.
1: Mm. you yeah. I'd love for you to take us into the future. As a designer, where if we're having this conversation in 15 years' time, what do you think has changed? What do you hope perhaps has changed about our conversation? You know, there is, I think, and I mean we can mix this in with the COVID element here. You know, COVID has disrupted its it's paused. It's created reckoning. It's accelerated different markets, you know, different technologies. You know, a decade in eight weeks in some cases. So this, I mean, we're in this m- rapid moment of transformation now. Um, although here in Australia, thankfully, we're less impact. We've been less impacted by kind of the pandemic itself. What's your, what would you say about the kind of one of the scenarios of where we go to from here?
0: Well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it depends on whether we have the capacity to learn and <laughs> or whether we don't. Look, yeah. uh, what's really interesting is that fundamentally, I mean, uh, uh, obviously not, um, I mean, COVID has been a, an unbelievably tragic situation for so many people. But I think that one of the things, which I wouldn't even say it's a, upside it's just a consequence of that is I think that it's rewired something for most people on earth that we live within we live within nature not separate from it nice. so for for the last couple of centuries we've controlled and dominated and reshaped nature to our will mm. and pretty much without i mean of course there's consequences but but in terms of um we're sort of born those consequences as being acceptable for the to some I mean governments or other you know obviously to some people they've been unacceptable but what what I think has shifted somewhat is is there's a few there's a confluence of things going on one is this understanding that at what was what was at once at one time an existential kind of scenario where nature can nature is really more powerful than we are but but how is that ever really manifest globally because you might have a a tornado in one place, but it's not everywhere so yeah. this is the this is the moment where nature proves irrefutably that it it is you know more we live within the bounds of nature we don't we're not separate to that mm. and what's also interestingly for me um happened simultaneously is. The reckoning of the Black Lives Matter movement. So this sense of of really coming, what, beginning to come to terms with with the the historical consequences of colonialization. because that that is the system that we live within. I mean, I yeah. think we have to be realistic. The economic system that we live within, the trading systems, the commodities systems, um, they are they were developed over the last. Five hundred years, and the, the the whole, and while there are great um, and um, attributes like democ- like like um, uh, democracies that exist, and um, they're all founded on on systems which which have um, uh, questionable mm. a- aspects to them, and um, and then so those things happening side by side with with then the sort of this idea of. Um, you know the the the, man, the manifestation of climate change and that and that really becoming more and more apparent and more and more consensus um now thankfully with america coming back into the, some sort of semblance of sense there but so for me what i hope is that within 15 or 20 years we will have begun the next phase of human creative evolution which is when we think of the post-war period yeah. um, uh, 1950 a huge explosion of innovation mm. uh, huge explosion out of tragic situation um, and, and there are some consequences of that and what we've learned possibly from that one is that which is the last great explosive period of innovation is we need to be very conscious of what we bring into the world because the, the massive injection of plastics and other things that came that reshaped the world's economy. We didn't anticipate what the consequences would be. So for me, I'm I'm really excited about a sort of a shortening or mm. a re a relocalisation of supply chains, mm. uh, a, a focus on transparency, uh, an understanding about um, again ecological and human health as related to labour and, and production, but also what be- what we are seeing ahead of us, which is the emergence of, of AI, yeah, biomateriality, and and hopefully a re-evaluation and a revaluing of indigenous knowledge systems, and and you start to have the recipe for what could be the most exciting period of human civilization. Um, I, that's my optimistic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also an optimist, Ewan. So, um, uh, and I think you're absolutely right on this. I think. And the question to me comes down to design, ultimately. You know, there's a great, a great line from Harari, um, who I quite like as an author, where he says, for every dollar we invest in artificial intelligence, we should invest at the same amount of money in raising human consciousness. And in my view, one of the best ways to do that is to have powerful education approaches that are equitable and deeply human in that they really do pay attention to all the dimensions of what make us human and make us, frankly, powerfully able to contribute to the economy, you know, the future of work over here. You know, anything that's automated is being automated um, quite rapidly. So the idea of the future, if we design this well, can be a more humane and human future mm. uh, and one perhaps, you know, we're seeing all these rise of different models, I think, now. It, you know, new school models, new ways of thinking, um, and yet, maybe it's not invention; it's just remembering. To your point. Well, I
0: mean, I, mean, I think that the to, uh, and I have four children. I've put, uh, you know, I've uh, I, and through that you have a lot of interaction with schools. Yes. Um, I think that fundamentally one of the observations I would have of the general global education system, which works, you know, there are obviously differences, but but we need to remember that education. Um, like large-scale uh, compulsory education was developed um, to facilitate the growth of factory-based economies. You know, mm. so these are so there was a, there's a direct relationship between school and school environments and the economy, and the economy that emerged in the 20th century defined mm. the types of education. So this idea of of you know and information-based, you know, literacy, numeracy, these things which are all very, very useful. But, um, mm. yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of people obviously who are who are um, advocates for a, Sir Ken Robinson or Ray Kurtz file or other people like this idea of um, I can really see it clearly. Like if I look at the different things that are coming online that I see ahead, mm. um, it's, not, um, it's not about technical capability. It's about what do we what do we what do we what can we do with these tools so yes. this you need a you need an expanded um headspace you need you need to be able to integrate and see con the connect the dots across broad often unrelated things so this kind of transdisciplinary thinking mm. Um and if we are going to really seriously address things like climate change we're going to need you, you know you're going to need really expanded thinking and you're going to need a highly collaborative uh, uh, sort of you're going to need types of people and um, so that I'm all into kind of networks not silos and the idea that design design is to some extent and it's not the only field, but it is one of the fields where those things can be, lots of things can be synthesised because the mm-hmm. designer's job is to actually synthesise information and to remix that and come up with something new. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I, I think it's great Australian schools are investing in STEM, um, but I think STEM, STEM is a set of tools. Yeah. What we need is synthesis of those, you know. So yeah, and, you know, you, you need the creative spark that then mm. pushes that into a whole different uh, stratosphere. And I, I don't necessarily see that that's something that the Australian education system is is prioritising enough.
1: Mm. I'd love for you to pick up this idea of design, in particular, in terms of. Like how, do, how might we better deploy design in education itself? Because there is this, you know, design thinking, for example, has been something that's become quite a theme, I would say, in, in much of the work that's happening in the, only the past few years, although it's been around for quite some time. And, and the idea, and I think we're seeing this, some of the great work of educators across Australia and, and more globally, the idea of co-design. Because mm. what you actually do is you, you recognise the agency that learners have and their need for support, and guidance and mentoring, and then you co-design a unit in that way. And so there's amazing examples where you have, you know, students that are sitting on panels or sit on the, on the council of the, of the school, you know, cause they are, they have the lived experience of moving through, uh, you know, the environment um, and the educational setting. So what would you say around the role of design um, intersecting with, you know the human systems like education, mm. and you can apply this to high, you know, higher education. You can apply this to companies and, and motivation design. I mean, really, sister.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a I think horizontal. there's a, there's a risk still, which is that that the dominant conversations around design are very much um, tied to the idea of producing something. Yeah. So, so I mean, I would I would say that what we need to see. I mean, design is a is a, at its best is a is a way of. Um, Attacking any kind of situation and looking for an enhancement or an improvement. Mm. So the idea—I mean, I've been involved with co-design projects with students when you when you're much more looking at a social impact type of thing. Um, but I, um, I, I, I think we will eventually get to a point where design fundamentally becomes like a mandatory subject. Uh, and I, globally, I mean, if I look at how rapidly design. As a field of mm. learning is growing in places like China, uh, like huge expansion because they understand that um, you know that it, it is goods and goods and services etc cetera, etc. Cetera, but but they um, it can plug into any level of society. Mm. So I think that um, design the education of educators around design and that's something we're quite involved with um, uh, needs to. And um, again, take that expanded view where you're mm. going. Design is not an op, not design. Uh, if you, we're talking creation. about designing objects, um, I mean, fundamentally, that is a narrow segment of what designers are capable of doing. Mm. Um, and it's probably th- the least interesting in that you get the least amount of. You, you, it's so iterative. Yeah. There are so you know. So you're getting you're getting minor iterative adjustments prototypes one through
1: 20 yeah
0: yeah and i I mean it's very it's good that people understand how that works how did how did this object in my hand come to be why is it shaped that way how does the human body work all of those things about empathy through an object etc but um but the 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 sense that um uh we could you you could you could really be looking at, at anything you could be looking at loneliness you could be looking at you know and um, uh you know uh, how people perceive themselves you could be looking at an environmental problem and um, it's having i think it's really and it's also what is design i mean it's a loose term in my view it's actually having a go at coming up with a better way of doing something you know really at its mm, root
1: that's, that's great you no know? um, and much more comprehensible too <laughs> you know for me you know, um,
0: <laughs> is there a better way and therefore um for me, one of the most important things we need to be teaching young people in particular, but to be honest, it's important with everybody, is to constantly ask why something is done the way it's done and and to and to have an attitude that everything can always be improved in some way. Like there's no finite position for any one thing we do in a society. So if a kid says, why are we doing it that way, Um the answer, which is, oh, well, that's just the way we do it, is, for me, the worst answer you could give. Mm. It's like, well, I don't know, can you come up with another way that maybe there are, you know, and... Um,
1: oh, it's great. Well, it's criti- critical um, thinking, you know, as part yeah. of, you know, discernment. These are, like, critical skills for the, for the our current moment. Um,
0: yeah, and, and also I think, interestingly, treat, uh, um, that kind of what I describe as the sort of hinterland behind anything is teaching... A way of understanding the backstory. So we need we need much more clarity around mm. um, how the labour market works, how supply chains work, how extraction yeah. works. You know all of these things that are fundamental. You know how does what are, what, what are financial services? How do they how do they work? How do, um, um, uh, because all of that stuff is actually what we need to redesign. Mm. you know you got to read you got to slowly redesign all of the systems that wrap around the society and keep enhancing and improving them um and we need to be engaged in policy and in democracy to make sure that that but we need to also know what we're trying to change and why mm. um and that it's not as simple as just saying ban that you know like um you know we we're going to um we're going to not uh, use um, palm oil anymore because it's affecting orangutans. fine that sounds fine, but then what are we going to use and what is mm-hmm. that when then what other issue does that create so yeah. system understanding how systems interact is mm. um, I find it fascinating, but yeah. it, it's 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 something that I think people just sometimes glaze over because there's too much too many permutations now and mm. my question would be. I think possibly the the it is so complex because it actually complexity aids the lack of transparency
1: yes yeah you know?
0: um, and and there is a vested interest in things being complicated and inaccessible lo- looking complicated
1: yeah and many many industries uh, the legal profession comes to mind for example <laughs> you know have have it you need so much expertise to then be able to kind of deconstruct decrypt some of that 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 world. Yeah. I'm really, it's, it's fascinating. I think largely it's the, the shift in paradigm. That's interesting here as well from, you know, as you say, the, like what systems are for and what's included within the system and what's not, you know, so we move from the fact as humans, as, you know, the dominators of the natural world to part of the natural world. And similarly, that we are all living in societies and communities uh, and nothing actually can be separated wholly. Um, so I, I love this idea of radical transparency and it's something that we see, you know, in companies as well, the idea of radically transparent cultures or, you know, providence yeah. or supply chains uh, and similarly in learning. Like how do we make all the learning visible and make the yeah. learning visible? And it's a great, you know.
0: Well, well, I mean, if you built literacy for young people in being able to understand the hinterland of a thing or a service, then then they are much better pre- Then you will rapidly accelerate the evolution of the corporate sector. I mean, mm. the corporate sector is not evolving because they, I mean, often those things are based on consumer sentiment and mm. new policy. So, you know, we need to look at the, the, the you know, and it's, it is, it's not about um, uh, hammering on with all the negative. It's, it's actually understanding how these things just work, not necessarily there are some positives and some negatives yeah um, but also the um, um, I mean rebuilding that language um, and and um, and enabling um, uh, people to to sort of um, have conversations about the values um that that that, that, that we um, want to prioritize I mean i I am also interested in the idea that what designers do really well also is imagine. Mm. So, yeah. like, I don't see that much um, conversation around like, where do we want to be in when you say fifteen years time? Where's the conversation about well, what type of country does Australia want to be yeah. in fifteen years time?
1: That's a great question. And um,
0: uh, who's hosting that conversation? And how do we how do we not? S- because the reality is that. Um, some societies do do have that. But I, I think as a general rule, we're just dealing with, with um, the political terms of office yeah. that we're dealt with um, and there isn't a sort of broader um, discourse about, you know, societal values and, how, and what's the common ground. We're, the political frameworks that wrap around us are about oppositionality, not mm. about commonality. Mm. Um, and I'm very interested in the fact that the most effective policy or decision-making, when you take something like the Millennium Development Goals, which became the Sustainable Development Goals, that was the one, I think it was the only piece of policy introduced at in the United Nations where all countries unanimously decided to vote yes mm. because those values are so fundamental to all of the... All of societies yeah. that you you sort of, you would look like, you would look really <laughs> bad to disagree with. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's such a great point, want I love this, I love this idea on imagination as so critical. We, we had our Professor Davis Daly um, on a few on, earlier in this podcast, and he just spoke about the, how critical that is in education to nurture and nourish imagination. Um, because, of course, there's a very strong link with creativity. Um, It's been a delight to speak with you today. You know, I feel like we could cover much more ground. If you had to leave us with a take-home message, uh, Ewan, from your particular vantage point, um, what would you want to share?
0: Um, I think um, we should value um, curiosity above, you know, like this sense of, um really yeah curiosity imagination you know the 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 fact is that um the some of the greatest achievements of human cultures um are because someone decided to do something differently Mm -hmm. and and so we we need to constantly facilitate uh, the opportunity for things to be done differently and there is no i mean that's one of the fundamental one of the greatest lessons my parents taught me is there is no one right way of doing anything um so so opening ourselves up to that you know remaining flexible and I think for educators in particular um this sense of all children and young people are unique so how how can we Provide as much flexibility how do you how do you create that situation where someone can find their uniqueness Mm, mm. um it seems to me that the there is a it's it's more it's more effort in the short term but the dividend is so amazing in the long term and I think that um uh, you know of course you'll have other people talking about just even that the value that we place on teaching itself um um, I think it's one of the most important jobs in our society and um, uh, and I suppose to some extent that's what curators do as well so you know I, I, I get it but thank you yeah. it's um it's it's a been a lovely conversation and I, I mean I would just tie back to that idea of um, remaining furiously uh, curious and um, irrepressibly optimistic and those two things um, will if 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 that became the fuel for the next twenty years of our mm. civilizations, then um, we could achieve amazing things.
1: Yeah, we absolutely could, and I, hopefully, look forward to seeing you continue to do that great work and um and change people's perspectives. Thank you for joining us for the podcast, Yuan.
0: Okay, Luca. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.